0: Good morning. I don't think I've had a chance to say Happy New Year to everybody, so Happy New Year. <clears throat> what else could I get you to say? <laughs> you're a when you're up front, you can get people to do a lot. It's kind of scary, actually. But no, seriously, it's really it's great to have everybody here this morning. Uh, it's great to have the Higbees here, just to have them around, it's super cool. And uh, also, yeah, you can clap, That's good. Go. <clears throat> If you're uh, someone that's new here today, we're really glad to, to have you. And I know I've seen a couple of you I haven't seen for a little while. It's great to see uh, see some of you this morning. But um, here's where we're at. We've been working through the book of Matthew. And I had kind of warned you before that we were going to take a little bit of a break and skip over 193 3 through 12, which kind of revolves itself around marriage and divorce and remarriage and singleness and sexuality and, and gender and all kinds of different things. We'll, we'll, we'll look at those, again, not in depth, but we're going to take a look at them. And the reason I wanted to spend six weeks, a lot of the reason is, is just I think this is a really difficult issue. And I think anytime you go through a difficult issue and you don't give it time to kind of work out and for people to think and wrestle and process through a a text like this over a few weeks, you can kind of just skip over it. And we never in our own maybe hearts and minds get to deal with, I think, what is a really important issue. Now, I'll I'll say it from this way. I come from a family that uh, is broken. Uh, My parents were divorced and um, they didn't divorce until I was kind of in my late 20s, early 30s and i don't know if i ever had a maybe a tenderness or a gentleness or a sensitivity towards those who have walked through divorce and through walked through some of those difficult things until i watched my own parents go through it And you know this, anytime you watch someone you love go through it, you you hope that the Lord just puts a tenderness and sensitivity in your heart. And so even this morning, if you're someone that is in the midst of a difficult marriage, in the midst of, or has even walked through divorce, remarriage, all those different things, just my hope is, is you won't give up on what we're going to do over the next six weeks on what I'm going to talk about this morning, because here's why. Instead of dealing with reality of where we are today, in this particular text, it deals with the ideal, what God meant for marriage. And I think sometimes until you kind of put that backdrop of of what God intended for marriage, it's hard to kind of understand the rest of it. And so what I want to do this morning, because I think this is what Jesus does in many ways, is he throws up in front of everybody. throws up, makes it sound bad. Um, He puts up in front of everybody this reality of what was intended when God created marriage the hope that God had, the, the way in which he was moving it through. And so we're gonna look at that this morning, kind of the intent of marriage. Then we're gonna come back over the next five weeks, we're gonna look at God's intent for sex. Uh, also looking at the reality of sexual brokenness. I think in our world today, that's just a, one, of, that's one of the huge issues that I think we need to, we need to work through as a church. We're gonna work through God's provision for marital unfaithfulness. What do we do in that when there's brokenness? We're gonna look at singleness. Um, I think in some ways we always think this passage is only about marriage or remarriage, but actually Jesus also spends three verses talking about singleness and the high calling of singleness. And then we're gonna kind of bring it all together of how marriage and singleness kind of fits into the mission of what is at the very end of Matthew 28, which is that we would now be this group of people who are disciples, who make disciples, who make disciples to live in what God's called us to be. But I think on one end, when I talk about marriage, It is incredible. I mean, my wife is really fortunate. (laughs) Hey, wait, you weren't supposed to laugh. You were supposed to go, hmm. (laughs) And so on one end, it is. It is incredible. But anybody that doesn't acknowledge the difficulty of marriage, either you haven't maybe pressed into marriage like you're supposed to or you're lying to me or whatever. Marriage is just, it's hard. There's difficulties to it. And so on one end, I feel like people can either get cynical, and especially so many young people anymore, I can't remember the percentage. It's a high percentage that they don't want to get married because of how difficult it is. But for those of you that are maybe holding back on it, let me just tell you, actually, the statistics are a lie. I, when I was going through and I was looking at different guys putting together statistics, in actuality, the whole 50-50 thing isn't even true. George Barna was the one that kind of came up with that number, but he said, man, they're misinterpreting my data. That's actually not what it says. It's well greater than 50-50. The other thing was I found one statistic that says that 61 to 62% of people that are in marriages are very happy. You don't hear that very often, do you? Usually it's like, oh, marriage is awful. What am I gonna do with it? I mean, not from my wife again, you know, but like other, other people. But I think because sometimes we either get cynical or maybe we get a little bit too ideal, we actually miss how incredible marriage is in the way that God uses it to shape and mold us. But more importantly, my hope today is you'll actually see that God has a bigger picture for marriage than even just what we sometimes think. So if you could, if you're able, I'd like everybody to join me, let's stand up. I'd love to read the passage that we're gonna go over for the next six weeks. And after we read it, then I'll, I'll pray for us. And then we'll start diving into Matthew 19. It says this. Now, when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went from Galilee and entered the region of Judea, beyond the Jordan, and large crowds followed him and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. They said to him, why did Moses command one to give give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it wasn't so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another commits adultery. The disciples said to him, as such is the case of the man with his wife, it is better not to marry. Which by the way, I think that is most so many young people, it's just better not to marry. But he said to them, Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those whom it's been given. For there are eunuchs who have been made so from birth, there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive it, this receive it. Father, would you right now allow me to communicate your word? Would you allow ears and hearts to be opened, to be transformed by your Holy Spirit. And would we be different people because of our time together, please. In your precious name we pray, amen. All right, you can have a seat. Now we'll come back to the whole eunuch thing if you're wondering how that fits together when we talk about singleness, because I'll help you understand, it's probably not what you, what, what you think it is. But let me, let me see if I can kind of set the scenario up for you starting in, in verse one. If you remember right, kind of in this particular passage, Jesus has just been teaching about this whole idea of forgiveness. Specifically, he talks about at the very end of chapter 18, this idea of forgiveness from the heart, which by the way, keep this in your mind, heart. Heart is very important to where we're gonna be going today and understanding kind of what it is that kind of messes up these these marriages that we have on, on some levels. But he began his trip to Jerusalem, you can kind of see this. He was, he was walking away from Galilee, kind of his main hub, and he goes along the eastern side of the Lake of Galilee, down the Jordan, headed towards the Dead Sea. We, we've already studied kind of at the end of it, he came out kind of by Jericho. But he's moving down through this, and as he's going through, the idea that Matthew wants us to capture is here's Jesus leaving Galilee, and it talks about these crowds of people that are around him. And I talked about this before. This is probably the time when he had the largest group of people that he's had around him, just throngs of people that were kind of wondering, what's Jesus going to do when he gets back to Jerusalem at Passover? Something's going to happen here. And it's this one that's going back and the idea is, is a Messiah that's gonna ascend to his throne. Now they don't understand fully what's gonna happen in that time. But the idea is a conquering king going into the capital city to begin to reign and rule over all things. He's doing so as he's healing and kind of see that down in that particular text at the end of verse two, he's healing people. That's kind of the job of the Messiah. He's teaching, we learned that from the book of Mark. But what's important is, also, is that he's entering a unique territory that's held by a guy named Herod the Tetrarch. Now, if you don't know who Herod is, we kind of talked about it a little bit earlier, and we'll we'll go back to it in in Matthew 14. But he was the reigner and ruler over Galilee and kind of that region that he's walking through. So not only do I want you to remember heart, but I want you to remember Herod, because this is also important to where we're going to go today. But the idea was there was a large crowd, a crowd that would continue to grow. And by in fact, by the time that we get to chapter 21, it says it's a very large crowd, a very great crowd. So that's kind of what it looks like at the time. Now in the midst of all of it, as he's walking along, up to him come Pharisees. Now, if you were watching like a, you know, what are the, what are the things called where you boo and you hiss during a play? What, what are those called? Melodrama, if you can think of a melodrama all throughout the book of Matthew, whenever you see the word Pharisee, everybody should go boo, right? I mean, that's kind of what you should be doing, boo. Not only that, but it says in there, look at that in verse three, they came to test him. The word actually can be translated as tempt. It's what Satan did back in Matthew four. And Jesus said, you should not test the Lord your God. You shouldn't tempt him in that kind of a way. That would have been totally normal for Pharisees to be chilling along with Jesus because Pharisees were the heads of the synagogues back in all the various towns in which people were coming through. They were the main teachers of the law. They were the ones closest to the people in many ways. But the idea is is that they're walking along and they're hearing Jesus call himself, others call him the Messiah. He calls himself the Son of Man from Daniel 7, which Christian kind of walked us through a little bit. But you know the Pharisees, they're walking along, they're going, man, this Jesus, he's gaining a following. What are we going to do? And they're talking back and forth, trying to figure out the idea even is to start to trip him up. And finally, you know, one Pharisee suddenly goes, I got it. Divorce. That's how we'll get him. Now, why did he choose divorce? Well, on one end, he chose divorce, I think, because of what goes on inside of Deuteronomy 24 and specifically a debate that was happening at that particular time. There was two sides of this idea. In Deuteronomy 24, when it was talking about how we kind of work through a guy that takes a man to, or a woman to marry, and then after marrying, find out there was some, and this word is indecency, and we can't fully understand what that word means, but it's split into two camps of people. One, this guy named Hillel, which he's kind of more of what we might call the liberal guy, where he actually had a view that he, there was grounds for divorce no matter what it was. If my wife talked to another man, if, if, if my wife burned the bread, even he would talk about, you can just divorce her that was the indecency in her another guy named Shammai who is more of the conservative so if you happen to be a little bit more liberal maybe you like you know Hillel if you tend to be more conservative you like Shammai I'll just tell you both of them are wrong on some levels but he was like no the only grounds for that to happen is from adultery and in their mind they thought I know what we'll do if he chooses one side or the other then half the group will what like him in half will, we got him. But it wasn't just that. That wasn't just the issue. See, this passage wasn't even about what they were doing. This passage had everything to do with how does God protect his people in the middle of living in a fallen world? In this particular time, it was arranged marriages. And so a guy would present a huge dowry to a family. And if suddenly he got a wife that was indecent, again, whatever that might've meant at the time, it was a way for him to have protection from it, a way to protect him from from getting maybe given someone that that was less than what the father had promised. But it wasn't just the man. Inside of this was also a protection for the woman because if a man divorced his wife and left her out there without this bill of divorce that's talked about in this particular passage, she would be in a terrible position. A woman not married, a woman without her sons to protect her within life in this particular time would have been in a terrible position. And so, this passage had nothing to do with what the Pharisees, in many ways, were trying to argue about. They had weaponized what God had given them as a means of protection. It was sick. What's so gross about this is I'm just imagining myself as one who has divorced parents. Well, now a divorced parent because my dad went to be the Lord, but with divorced parents hearing this, and as they're jockeying back and forth about a debate, that is affecting my life. Like think in your own life how much hurt and pain those of you who have walked through it are experiencing, and these guys are weaponizing it as a way to try to disprove Jesus is the Messiah. It would have been sick. The other part about this to try to get after him, if you remember right, I talked about Herod. On one end, this was a religious issue. They were trying to get him to choose a side in a religious debate. On the other end of it, because they're going down through where Herod came from, if you go back to chapter 14 in in Matthew, we know this, that between it, that that Herod had gone after his, his brother's wife Herodias, they had divorced, and later on John the Baptist comes to him and says, that's not a legitimate marriage. And you know what happens to John the Baptist when he tells him that Herodias and Herod's marriage was illegitimate, he basically gets his head cut off. And so they're thinking to themselves, I know. We'll make this a religious debate and we'll make this a political debate. And all the while were real people's lives that had been impacted by a very serious thing like divorce and they were making it weaponized. Now here's what I love about Jesus. Jesus was like, I don't know how else to say this man, but he was like spiritual jujitsu. People would use their, his, their weight against him and he was like, wow. You know, he was just, he would do these incredible things to get them off. Now, granted, he's the son of God. But in this scenario, watch what Jesus does in Matthew 19. He answered, have you not read? Now, I love that little statement, have you not read? Because these dudes were supposed to be the smart people. Had they read, they read over and over and over. Let me just tell you this. People always ask me, I don't think sarcasm is very spiritual. Jesus just was sarcastic. <laughs> now, not all sarcasm is spiritual, but there is spiritual sarcasm. Have you not read? Now, you know those dudes would have been going, seriously? I've got the Torah memorized. But Jesus is getting out of point here. He says to them, he who created them from the beginning. You all are making this debate about what happens after the fall. But have you ever thought about what God intended before the fall ever happened? Not only that, here's what's so crazy about it. It hit me this week. Jesus was there before the fall. In fact, he was probably the one in some ways in this pre-incarnate Jesus that was the one that did the wedding. Have you read? Because in the back of his mind, he must have been going, I was there. I was there, it talks about. When we, they were to clean, we made them, and look at this, male and female. We made them a, I have to say it in our world today, a genetic biological male and a genetic biological female, okay? We'll get back to that as we move along over the next few weeks. And then, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, now, in Hebrew thought, what he was doing is he was grabbing Genesis 26 on one end of it, and then he was going all the way over to Genesis 2, 126, and then all the way over to Genesis 225. And the idea was, is you're supposed to look at everything in between. Whenever they'd kind of quote like that, they would give the two bookends, and you're supposed to bring everything in it into the understanding. Meaning marriage is between a biological genetic female and a biological genetic male. That's the way I intended it from the very beginning. When I brought them in, and you can see this in verse 27, I created them, and the idea was is to have, even he talks about it in verse 20, uh, 26, to have dominion, to cause flourishing. When I created this man and this woman, I created them in my image, it talks about in verse 26, and I created them to do what I had done. I created them to take the stuff that I had given them and to cause flourishing, to cause newness and goodness, to bound everywhere in things that they touch. That's what I created them to do. That's what it's supposed to be like. Not only that, 225, 224, I created them to hold fast to one another. The imagery was of God, if you remember right in Genesis 2, of bringing animals before Adam. He brings one in front of him, right, to show him his need for salvation. Someone else that was like him, and he got a, you know, a hippo and an elephant and an ostrich and a platypus and all these different things that are coming in front of him. And he's like, No, that's not me, that's not me, that's not me. God puts him to sleep, takes a little juice out of his hip, forms a woman. And Jesus is like, I was there. I saw his face when he saw the woman. It was very good. I was there. I created them, he explains a little bit later, to to not only hold fast, but to be joined together down in verse six. Joined together means to be yoked together, a a tandem that works together in such a way that it flourishes. That's the way I'm meant for it to happen. Working side by side and causing these things to come to life that weren't there before. It was covenant language, legal language that was meant for depth, for safety, for honesty, for Transparency. See, the beauty of marriage is that's what it creates. It creates a sense of permanence in which now we can actually learn each other. It's so different than how our our kind of culture sees it, right? Whenever we get married from a cultural standpoint, it's like attraction or passion and, and good. That's a true statement. Like Song of Solomon sees attraction and passion and sees them as good. When I first saw my wife across that dance floor and she saw me, she was instantly attracted. I'll stop now. It's actually, I was, I was like, dang, you know, I felt like Adam, hello, There's that side of it, right? But you know how in dating, it's kind of just fake, right? Like when we first went on our date, we went to this place called Perkins and I hardly had any money cause I'm in college, but I'm like, oh, I want to take her out. So we went to Perkins and we shared a chocolate chipper. I figure I'm gonna kiss that girl anyway, so we might as well eat food together. So we got a chocolate chipper, we hung out, we were coming out, and and I'll I'll share this with you guys. Like, I don't know how else to say this, but I had gas. (laughs) So I come out of the restaurant, I'm trying to think, what am I gonna do? And I thought, I'll get the door for her. So I go over, I get the door for her, I put her in, I do what I need to do, is I slowly walk around the back of the car. I get into my car, and later on, somebody asked my wife this. She goes, when did you know that you were going to marry Todd? And she said, it was that night, that first night, when he opened the door for me. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, we're so fake when we date, aren't we? (laughs) There's passion. There's attraction. But that's not what he's talking about here. See, Jesus was like, when I created marriage, I didn't create it to be just in this awkward dating phase in which we're putting our best foot forward. I've created it in such a way where we make promises to one another. We covenant to one another. It's it's this stable identity because lack of security, this lack of a place in which I can truly be who God's created me to be, man, at the end of the day, it doesn't allow us to be who we are. I've always told people, man, in your first year of marriage, you're still kind of in that weird dance, second year, third year, fourth year. You're still dancing a little bit, trying to figure out what does it look like to be married together. But there's something amazing that happens as you stay in it. The other person starts to become who they really are, and sometimes that's scary, right? You didn't do this when you dated me. I'll never forget my wife looking at me at one point and I'm like, I mean, I can do a few things around the house, but let's just say I'm not Tim the Tool Man, right? And I remember her looking at me at one point, she goes, gosh, I just realized you're not my dad. <laughs> nope, I'm not. <clears throat> there's this side of it though, we created and I think there's nothing actually more loving nor able to truly invigorate a marriage than when things are able to be transparent and honest, but safe and secure. He said, that's the way I created it. I created it to be that way. I created it to, to happen in such a way that now when you stay in that long enough, you start to potentially know one another and care for one. In fact, was one statistic also that I saw is that two thirds of unhappy marriages become happy within the first five years of marriage if they stay married. Why? Because you get to work through things. It's this place of stability. It's a place where, yeah, we might have quick attraction. We might have passion. And I'm so glad Song of Solomon was written for that very case. But Jesus is like, you should have been there when it was what it was intended. On some levels, I do wonder those people that are sitting around, they saw these other guys weaponizing it, and all of a sudden, Jesus took them to this other place. He painted a picture of what it could be. But then the obvious question comes in, verse seven. Okay, Jesus, if that's the case, then why did Moses give a command in this way that one is to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? That's an obvious question. But I love what Jesus does here. Marriage was to be a form of protection both for the man and the woman. However, divorce he talks about is a result of rebellion. Verse eight, because of your, remember I said for you to remember this word, hardness of heart. There's the word. Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, that's not the way I intended it. That's not the way it was created. And the only reason that God allowed it was because of this hardness of heart. So that's what we kind of have to understand. What is it about the heart that is so causing this problem? Well, throughout the book of Matthew, this word heart is just used over and over again. In fact, it's 16 times. It just keeps getting littered throughout it. And here's the greatest thing that Jesus keeps reminding us over and over and over again all throughout the book of Matthew He came to change that heart. They had no clue. Well, those guys are sitting and going, How do we trip him up? How do we try to prove he's not Messiah? How do we do all these things? They had no clue. He was entering back into Jerusalem and he wasn't going to ascend a throne. He was going to ascend a cross. And when he ascended that cross, his death, his burial, his resurrection, and eventually the giving of the Holy Spirit, we'll talk about that in a bit, was the very way in which these hearts would be changed. They had no clue. He said, that's why God allowed it. But I've come to change it. Well, how are you gonna change it? Well, in Matthew 19, just a little bit later, there's this rich young ruler that comes to him and he he doesn't have a transformed heart. And the guys finally look at Jesus after this guy's walked away and they said, well, gosh, who then can have a heart transformed in essence? He said, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. This is what I love. I'm so thankful in a broken world in which things seem so impossible, Jesus Christ came to take that which is impossible and make it possible. Now let's kinda look at that a little bit. Right before in 1835, let's look at this idea of a heart We know it must be changed. And right before he talked about this idea of forgiving from the heart, a brutal plan. Why do we need to have our hearts transformed? Well, in Jeremiah 17, you can kind of see that up on the screen. The reason we need to change is because the heart is deceitful above all things. Desperately sick. Who can understand it? The idea is nobody. So what's God gonna do? Well, I love in the book of Jeremiah, it also says, I will give them a new heart to know that I'm Lord. And I put it in blue because I want you to watch how many times this happens. They shall be my people and I will be their God. I'm gonna transform their heart so that they can come into a right relationship with me. Let me just say this again. Hearts are never transformed until you come into a right relationship with Jesus Christ. If you're somebody sitting here today that does not know Jesus Christ, the reason that we call people to bend their knee to King Jesus and believe in his work, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his calling out to you respond by faith, is your heart will never be changed until you bend your knee to that Savior. But something amazing happens after that. Not only does he give them their heart, but he says, I will write my law on their hearts. I will, I will write into them how it is that we're designed to be their, I'm designed to be their God. And look at this, at the end, I will be their God and they shall be my people. I'll draw them into relationship. Look at Ezekiel. I'm gonna take out their heart of stone, that hard heart from their flesh, and I'm gonna give them a heart of flesh, one that's, that's malleable and true, that they might walk in my statues, keep my rules, obey them, and look at here again. They shall be my people and I will be their God. Ezekiel 36, I will give you a new heart. Now, not only that, but he connects it to this idea of a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove your heart of stone from your flesh. I'll give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and here it is again. You shall be my people, and I will be your God. What Jesus was doing was come to die, be buried, rose again, go back to the Father, give the Holy Spirit. Why? To draw people near to him. And the only way you can live the marriage that God has called you to live is by coming near to this God through Jesus. Let me just say this. There is no other way. And all those guys around that are having this argument that had weaponized the passage. Some thought that he was going to you know, conquer Rome and drive them away. Some were just not sure what he was gonna do. Some were trying to stop him. But no one had a clue he was going to change their condition. I always say this and I wanna repeat it again. The biggest problem in this world is not a geopolitical problem. For all of you that are worried about China and Russia, you know, we'll allow our government to do that, but God's not worried about China and Russia. You get that, right? God's not in heaven going, oh my gosh, what am I gonna do with China and Russia? Jeez. God's not really even in some ways the social problems that we face that everybody gets so irate and upset over. You understand social problems don't change until hearts change. Yeah, but Todd, we live in Southern California. It has Disneyland, the very gateway to Hades. (laughs) Our biggest problem is not geopolitical. Our biggest problem is not social. Our biggest problem is not all these things that we've made it. The biggest problem that humanity faces is the heart. That's what must be changed. It's the only solution. People will come and say, you know, can you help fix my marriage? And I'm always like, nope, I can't. I can't fix your marriage, but God can change your heart. See, that's what he's getting after here. They have no clue. Everyone in there is wondering how and with what and all these different things and he's just talking to them. The condition that you have is why I came. And by the way, when that condition changes, everything starts to change. Vote your conscience, please. Vote correctly. But you do get it, right? Who our next president is, God still is on his throne reigning. No matter who it is, you understand that even at the end of the day, our Congress and our governor and our, all these different things, everybody's so worries about it. And again, we're supposed to vote and we're supposed to cause flourishing within the, the places in which we are. So I'm not saying don't do anything. But all those people in power will not be there except for God allowed them to be there. And God brought them in and God can take them out. The greatest problem is not them and I wish in some ways everybody's Facebook posts and Instagram posts and tweets and whatever else you do would start reflecting your belief in a God who supersedes and transforms hearts and can change all things. Jesus Christ reigns and rules. With me? With me? Now, let's look at that a little bit more. Paul in Ephesians kind of deals with the same thing. Look at verse 17 and this whole idea of hardness of heart. Let's look at it. He says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. In the futility of minds, they are darkened in their standing, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that's into them. Why? Their hard hearts. Why are people in our culture darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them? They're hard hearts. If you wanna see culture change, really change, then we will be a massively evangelistic church and sharing the gospel like crazy. We would spend less time in politics and way more time as the church going out and announcing the greatest message ever of Jesus Christ, who came, buried, rose again, reigns and rules at the right hand of the Father, has sent his Holy Spirit, is now proclaiming the message, not only in the United States, but to the very ends of the world, to every tribe, tongue, and nation, because one day that king is returning and he will reign victorious. And so all these other things that we engage in, they're secondary to the greatest. Their hardness of heart. So, what are we supposed to do? Ephesians 4. That's not the way you learned Christ. Something that you've heard about him, we're taught in him is the truth is in Jesus to put off your old self. It's that same idea of, of putting off the old heart, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of mind, it's to put on the new self. This is the new heart that he's talking about. Created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. In other words, I want you to be transformed in your whole self. I want your heart to be made different. But how is that going to happen? The Spirit of God. Spirit changes us. And right after stating that the Spirit transforms us, he then gets into marriages and he says, When marriages get hit rightly by my Spirit and hearts get transformed, a miracle happens. Wives, start to engage their husbands in a correct way. Husbands start to engage their wives in a way. And look at the way it talks about husbands in Ephesians 5. Husbands will love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the word with water so that they may present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish in the same way husbands should love their wives. Whoa. To that extent, that has very little to do with passion and sexual desire. This has everything to do with sacrificial love. When my spirit hits you, you will be like my son. You will love sacrificially. And then look what he says in verse 31. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother. Sound familiar? Hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Verse 32, this is a mystery, is profound. And I'm actually saying it refers to Christ and the church. Your marriage is something bigger than between just you and your spouse. Submission that he talks about earlier in chapter five, verse 22, kind of through there is that wives are called to submit, and we hate that term, submit. But in actuality, it's a way that we show off God. It's the way the son came and submitted himself, and as we submit ourselves to those in authority over us, and we don't like that word either. We don't have anybody over us. Really? We have all kinds of things over us. But it's not only how people handle their submission, but it's how they handle their authority, and God's church is meant to do it in such a way that people go, No way. That guy was granted authority, but yet he uses everything in his power to cause that woman to flourish. He hasn't got his finger down on top of her. He doesn't use it as a way to get his and only his. He uses it as a way to help transform her doing what God is doing in her life into the image of Jesus. Wow. And that woman... She submits even though she doesn't even in a weird way kind of have to, but she does it in such a way that she might lift her husband up and encourage and strengthen him so that others might look at her and see what Jesus is supposed to look like. No way. I think that's what Paul gets to later on in 2 Corinthians 5. He says, look, there in there, Jesus died that all those who live might no longer live for themselves but for him and for whose sake they died. And therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation, the old's passed away, behold, the new has come. In other words, we're just made different. I said earlier the statement, love shouldn't be that hard. How hard was it though for the son of man to come to this earth, to live a perfect life, to die, be buried, to rise again the extent to which God went was difficult. And if we're gonna show off Jesus to the world, it's going to be difficult. It's gonna be hard. If all it is is about emotional kind of fulfillment or sexual fulfillment, man, at the end of the day, then we just base our marriages off, you know, what you can give to me now and I'll just take what you can and then I'm gonna leave you and move on. But man, there's got to be something so much bigger. Sacrificial love that he's talking about in these particular passages, where Jesus was looking back on what the intent was back in the garden. It's not just about attractiveness and sexual chemistry. Again, don't, don't sell those wrong. When I looked across that room, I did see a woman and I said, dang, hello, girl. But it's got to be about something bigger. And if you're married today and you're a follower of Jesus, the bigger is you're designed to show off Jesus and the church. That's why he has marriage. Sure, it's to procreate. Sure, it's to have sex and enjoy it. But if all marriage is is romantic and kind of idealistic, man, we'll miss the power of sin. If all it is is cynical and pessimistic, man, we'll miss the marriage as God intended it. It's something greater. And not only that, but it's gonna come to an end. I know Mormons teach us that we're gonna be married forever, but we're not. Whenever we say our vows, we say, until death do us part. There's gonna come a point where it talks about in Matthew 22, where there's no longer marriage nor giving in marriage, because as it talks about in Revelation 19, eventually one day we will be in a unique way forever married to Jesus, the church. Marriage is just a pointer pointing us to that greater one. There's something so much greater let me let me let me finish this way right now for those of you that are married if you were given a blank canvas and given an opportunity to paint on it whatever you want what marriage is what would you paint what would you paint I think initially my wife would have painted a handyman with a tool belt. (laughs) She'd have been like, hello, sexy, right? I mean, it's just like, there you are. Maybe she would have painted a Barbie dream wedding. And then she got up to the altar and looked at me and went, dang, I missed it on that one. For a guy coming in, there's all these thoughts we brought in, like it was gonna be just never ending bliss every day, all the time. We were gonna walk around our homes with very little clothes on, I'll just leave it at that. But we get old. I'm getting old. Falling apart. Getting my new yarmulke. (laughs) Purely for worship purposes. But it hit me the other day, I'm entering into one of the best parts of marriage. I don't have my extravagant good looks like I used to, No, my incredible body. My wife still looks good. But in a very cool way, there's an environment that God has built over 30 years of love. I wouldn't give that up for the world. The thing I love about it is, is we're learning in greater ways. Most importantly, not just how to love each other, but how to show Jesus off. I don't want my kids to get to the end of it and say, you know, my dad was... Handsome, my wife was, or my, my wife, Freudian. My mom, you know, she was hot or whatever. I want them to get the end and say, they learned how to love each other sacrificially. They created an environment like Jesus in the church. And I don't want them to long for our good marriage. I want them to long for the marriage they will share with the lamb one day forever and ever and ever, Amen. And that's what Jesus did. Well, all these Pharisees were weaponizing a text. He just said, let me tell you a story of what it should be. God had so much more. Now, if you're somebody in here today that has a good marriage, let me just say this. Those of us that maybe have a little bit better marriage, the struggle is going to be we're not going to long for heaven like we need to. Those of you that have difficult marriages, I've been, oftentimes found you long for heaven. For those that are single, I'll just say this to you. If you choose and if God allows you to get married, don't get married just because. Get married because you have a grander vision of what God wants to do. For those of you in a difficult marriage, don't long to get out yet necessarily. Even in difficulty, we can show off Jesus. For those of you that are in all those different spots, my hope is you'll stay with us because I think this text opens up our eyes to the reality that God has so much more for us than we oftentimes think when it comes to these issues. And so that's what we're gonna do over the next few weeks. If anybody needs prayer after, I would love to pray for you. We'll have a prayer team over here that we would be, we'd be happy to pray for you. But above all, aren't you so glad that God has a big plan? And let me say this also. You can't thwart our God's plan. Father, thank you so much for everybody that's in here. Thank you for your goodness, your grace. Thank you for something incredible like marriage. Father, I do pray for those that don't know you that today would be the day they come to know you. I pray for those that are in difficult marriages, Father, that they would be able to find help. They would be able to find grace and goodness in the midst of it. Those that have walked through divorce or even some of the aspects of remarriage. Father, those in singleness, those of us that have marriages that are doing well, Father, would you use this text not to create better marriages necessarily primarily, but marriages that show off to our community the greatness and the goodness of King Jesus. Would this be a place of hope to those that are longing, a place where they can find healing in the midst of difficulty? and a place where you will begin to create through the power of your Holy Spirit people that show you off in an incredible way. We thank you, Father, in your precious name, amen.